day marks a month in the book of Revelation. And today we come to the second of Christ's messages to the seven churches. We come to Jesus' epistle to the church of Smyrna, which we find in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This message that Jesus gave to the church in Smyrna is one that we desperately need to hear today. We are desperate for these words, whether we know it or not. So blessed are all those who hear them and who keep what is written in it. Today, Jesus is going to give, he's going to identify himself in such a way that accords with the needs of the church in Smyrna. So how does he identify himself? And then what are the needs in the church in Smyrna? We're going to want to answer those questions today, and we also want to know why we have those same needs, that we have those same needs, that we need this same Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing today as we look at this epistle to the church in Smyrna. Let's read what Christ has to say to them. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Pray. What wonderful words. What challenging words. I pray that we would receive them this morning. That as we hear them and receive them, we would indeed be blessed and not just a blessing that makes us feel good on Sunday morning, but a blessing that embeds itself into our whole life, our whole life that will last into eternity because we have come to you who is the first and the last, who died, yet behold, he lives. You are our Savior and our King, our brother. Help us to be faithful to you, even in the hearing of these words this morning. Thank you for the great gift, Father, that you have given to us in this one like a son of man. What a precious treasure we have. What wealth we possess. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, when we read the introduction to each one of these epistles, we should be understanding it to say, to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write. You know, it makes little sense to send these messages to angels. What will the angels do with them? Will the angels appear in front of the church and then begin proclaiming this message? The pastors already hold the position of messenger, which is what the Greek word for angel literally means, messenger. Additionally, the Greek word for preach, what I'm doing now, is to proclaim. 
to herald, to announce the things that the king has spoken. So yes, the letter to the church of Smyrna was sent to the pastor of the church, and that pastor was expected to proclaim the message to the people, to herald it. Just as I am expected to herald this message before you this morning. In these seven epistles that we come to in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus offers words of warning and words of encouragement. In each one of the seven, words of warning that usually have to do with the sinful behaviors within those churches, cracks of wickedness that threaten to break them apart, indeed are a dire threat to this first century church. Last week we saw that in Ephesus they had forgotten their first love, which meant that they had forgotten to love one another. They were good with theology, they had their doctrine down, but they were, they were failing at loving one another, at serving one another. And so Jesus warned the Ephesians that if they did not repent, that he would come upon them in judgment, that he would remove that church from Ephesus. But two out of the seven churches do not receive warnings about their wicked behavior. Those two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. These two churches seemingly are not in need of repentance. Jesus isn't calling them out, calling them to repentance. They're faithful citizens of the king, of the kingdom, living in obedience, loving one another, grounded in the truth. Even still, Christ has a warning for the church in Smyrna. Their tribulations were about to get worse. Already they face poverty. Already they know slander from apostate Jews. But verse 10 says that things are going to escalate. Things are going to get exponentially worse. Tribulation, imprisonment, and as we will see, death. All these were going to visit the Smyrna church. But the faithful church of Philadelphia receives no such warning. In fact, Jesus says to them, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So I'm not going to get into it today too deep, but Jesus is talking about a great tribulation that's going to fall upon the Jews, upon Israel, apostate Jews, and those rumblings of tribulation are going to be felt by the whole known world, the Christians all over the known world will feel the rumblings of this tribulation. And it is from this tribulation that Christ says he will protect the Philadelphian Christians. And it is the same tribulation that he is casting in the Smyrna church into. Now it's critical you see this. Jesus keeps some from those fires. And he casts others into the fire. Of tribulation. It has nothing to do with the faithfulness of the Christians involved. It has everything to do with the sovereign will of Him who is the first and the last. Both of these churches are faithful, but they get different treatments by God, by Christ, purely because He chose it to be so. Look at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So each epistle, Jesus is introducing himself in a unique way, and it follows that chiastic pattern which I mentioned last week in last week's sermon. So these unique elements of Christ's identity 
are exactly what each church desperately needs to remember. In fact, the way that these churches, these respective churches, are going to overcome their issues is by remembering the identity of the king, these very elements of identity that he gives to them. What he says to them, these are the means of overcoming. It's incredible. He doesn't throw them into the fire with nothing, with no help, just watching them burn. He gives them the very means to come through that fire and on the other side be gold, refined and purified and beautiful. For the church in Smyrna, that means wholly trusting that Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life. We saw a few weeks ago that when Jesus calls himself the first and the last, he is unequivocally declaring himself to be God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Jesus Christ is God. The first and the last. When we read these words in Isaiah, Jesus speaks. The future is before him who is God as the present is before us. Not only does he know the future, he knows all possible futures. And he doesn't, doesn't just know the future, he shapes the future. God does not look down the corridors of time into the future, perceive what's going to happen, and then adjust his plans accordingly. It is not how it works. He tells the future where to go and what to do. We are molded by time. He is the molder of time. He and he alone can declare the things to come, and surely they will happen. Therefore, the Smyrnan church, we in Emmanuel, we need not fear. Because the power of the future is wielded by the first and the last. So what he says, we can trust it entirely with our lives. We can trust him with our future because no matter what happens, we know that God is working our future out into something good. That's what he promises us who believe. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Only a God who shapes the future can say something like that. The first and the last, Jesus Christ, he is God. He is working all things together for good. And if you truly trust Jesus with your future, that means that you sacrifice your control for his control. And that means, indeed, if you're doing that, you love God. You trust him. And he has called you according to his purposes. Therefore, this good God, who is the first and the last, is working all things together for your good. 
In verse 8, Jesus also says of himself that he is the one who died and came to life. You see that symmetry? It's it's what Jesus said to John, who was absolutely terrified and flattened on the ground back in chapter 1. He said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys to death and Hades. So the first and the last, that is a title for God, for Yahweh. The one who died and came to life, that is a unique title for the Son of God. And Here we have the mystery of the Trinity, right here in verse 8. Jesus is God, yet he is a distinct person within the Godhead. The only one to have become a man, to have died, to have risen from the grave, only the Son of God. Is that true of? And when Jesus did rise from the grave, death was taken and thrown into the grave. He rises and death falls. Just as he rose, so also will everyone, every man and woman who loves him. It is the ultimate good that the first and the last is working all things towards. The resurrection of our bodies and our life eternally with him. Those graces, these wonderful graces, which I have just been surveying, are founded, established, sustained in the glorious identity of the king. These are the truths that we need today. They are the exact truths that the Smyrna church needed, urgently needed, In their day, look what it was that they were about to face in verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You can see that the Smyrna Christians already know tribulation, tribulations of poverty and slander. Jesus is fully aware of their trials and tribulations. And he knows them personally. He, he lived them. He experienced them. He knew poverty. He, he was homeless. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. Jesus knew slander. He was constantly chased and reviled by apostate Jews. He knew the tribulations of the Smyrnans because he experienced them personally. He, he lived them. And then he sees all things that are happening to the Smyrnans, and he knows them in terms of observing them, being aware of them, intimately aware of them. And though the church of Smyrna was poor, Jesus declares that they actually were rich, fabulously wealthy, unimaginably wealthy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Though the church in Smyrna possessed little in this world, the whole kingdom of God was theirs. None of it is reserved, kept apart from them. It is theirs. All of it. It's like Israel's patriarchs who possessed so little in their lifetime, and yet they were promised everything. In fact, Scripture teaches that Everyone who places their faith in Jesus 
becomes an heir of all of those promises, of all the promises that were given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even bigger, even better, like we read about in Galatians chapter 4, Scripture promises that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are an heir of God. And if that doesn't blow your mind, is there anything that will? An heir of God? That means that everything God possesses, he shares with you. Name something that he doesn't possess. He has life eternally. He shares it with us. He has brilliance of glory. He shares it with us. He overflows with wisdom. He shares it with us. Everything on the earth is his, and he shares it with us. And on and on and on that list goes. Though they were poor, in reality, they were unimaginably wealthy. So it is for every person who realizes that you, on your own, you are spiritually bankrupt. You are destitute. And so you look to Christ for forgiveness and life, and in him, Find the greatest treasure, a treasure so great you would be willing to sell all that you have in order to obtain it. For Christ is most precious above all. And he gives to you all in return as a gift, free gift of grace. All the combined wealth of Musk and Bezos and Gates, all of that combined, all those billions and billions, even trillions, cannot buy a single day of additional life. But those who are poor in spirit, we are flush with days. Every dollar that those billionaires own, we have in days, and 10,000 more, 10,000 times 10,000 more. And those number of days, once they have been lived, is just the beginning. So not only were the not only were the Smyrnans poor in terms of material wealth, but they also faced the tribulation of slander. Verse nine says that they were being slandered by false Jews, and I want to tell you the situation that was going on there in the first century, in those days before seventy A.D. Like many of the other seven churches, Smyrna. The city of Smyrna had a very large Jewish population, and that church in Smyrna was primarily comprised of, of Jews, and I talked about that a few weeks ago in the sermon. Jews did not regard, many Jews in Smyrna did not regard Jesus to be the Messiah. They rejected Christ as the Messiah, and then they accused these Jewish Christians of being false Jews. They said that they were heretics. You're following this false Messiah named Jesus. You heretics, you apostate Jews. That's what they were accusing the, the Jewish Christians of in Smyrna. But the ironic reality is that that was flipped on its head, and that's what Jesus is, is saying right here. They were the ones who were the false Jews. For to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. So these Jews in Smyrna called themselves true Jews. Today we might call them Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews. But from beginning to end, Scripture testifies that to reject Jesus is to reject God, and therefore there is nothing orthodox about them. In name only, there are not many paths to God. There is only one, and Jesus is the door to that path. He is the way that must be traveled. He is the life that is found there. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And any Jew who rejects Jesus, this is what Jesus says right here, any Jew who rejects Jesus worships at the synagogue of Satan. How's that for a hard word? You know, though, that that's not just true of apostate Jews. It's true of all who reject Jesus. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's an every person thing. Everyone who does not worship Jesus as Savior and Lord is a devil worshiper. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. To be of the devil as John writes here, is to be a devil worshiper. Is to have him as your master. Is to belong to the synagogue of Satan. It is to be spiritually dead and to face the wrath of God, as Paul wrote. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like who? Like the rest of mankind. It is not just Jesus rejecting Jews that fill the synagogue of Satan. Everybody Every single person that turns away from Christ, choosing instead to follow their own passions and desires, worships there also. So put in in other words, said another way, everyone who follows their heart is led directly into the synagogue of Satan. And Satan's congregation is enormous. All of mankind. And for such devotion to Satan, all of mankind will face the wrath of God. Fires that are not quenched. All those, that is, except that Christ has rescued, that has pulled out of this bondage. bondage. All those, that is, that Christ has not transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And that transfer 
that kingdom grows, and it grows, and it grows. And that darkness will not overcome it. Just one more note about rejecting Jesus. Admittedly, this is outside of our text today, but it bears such significance on the text and on our considerations of Revelation that I think we need to talk about it. The Apostle John is the only biblical writer to use the word antichrist. The word is only used four times in all of Scripture. And every time that it's used, do you know what it has to do with? Rejection of Jesus. 1 John 4.3 Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 1 John 2 Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there is a spirit of Antichrist. Anyone who denies Jesus thus denies the Father and they are gripped by the spirit of Antichrist. So the people in my life who I I love dearly, and yet who reject Jesus and instead follow their own passions, they are gripped by the spirit of Antichrist. The apostate Jews in Smyrna were likewise possessed by this spirit of Antichrist. Those that are gripped by the spirit of Antichrist worship in the synagogue of Satan. But those who go out deceiving, preaching falsehoods, spreading lies, rejecting Jesus, whether it's overtly or whether it's in subtle nuances that distort the truth of Christ, all of those false teachers are antichrists, deceivers. Second John 1.7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, And those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So that false teacher who's saying that Jesus is not God is the antichrist among the others who are also saying the same, who are also antichrists. They take a role against Christ. They are the antichrist. Though many antichrists were active in the first century, They are also active today. But even still, there was a great Antichrist that John alludes to. He doesn't come right out and say it, though. This Antichrist was a deceiver of the whole civilized world. And we commonly call him the Antichrist. When John wrote... The Antichrist was alive, and it was proof to the Christians of that time that they were living in the end. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, 
so now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. More than any other single individual up to that point, the Antichrist rejected Jesus and vainly attempted to seat himself in the place of God. He called himself the King of Kings. He called himself the Savior of the world. You can see some of these inscriptions emblazoned on Roman coinage. His name was Nero. And upon penalty of imprisonment and even death, all the civilized world was commanded to worship Nero as God. And when the Christians did not worship him, he was the first in history to wield the power of the state to persecute them. And many other Caesars would follow in the bloody and arrogant footsteps of this Antichrist, Nero. I go into that because there is a link to our text today. We see that, that the church in Smyrna faced persecutions from apostate Jews, from this synagogue of Satan, But the Jews did not have the power to imprison anyone, just like I don't have the power to imprison anyone. You do not. For that, you need the government to get involved. The fastest way to get the government to throw these early Christians into prison is by testing their loyalty to Nero. Bring them before the tax collector. Bring them into the marketplace. Bring them somewhere where there's an economic exchange because they were compelled to say in that moment, Caesar is Lord. What would happen if they didn't say it? If the Christians did not confess Nero as Lord, if they didn't say that he was the king of kings, if they claimed that Jesus had an authority greater than his, at the very least it meant imprisonment. At most it was death. And look at verse 10 now. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus said that a tribulation was coming to Smyrna. It's the same tribulation that he talks about with the church of Philadelphia where he says to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 10, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. It was not a tribulation coming thousands of years in the future. It was for them. It was coming in their time. They would experience it. The persecution of these false Jews coming against the Smyrna Christians was about to intensify. Now, it's my assumption, my hypothesis, that these false Jews as they slandered the Christians, stirred up the local government, the Romans, the authorities. It happened to Jesus. I imagine it's happening to the Smyrnans. But behind the Jews, behind the authorities, there's Satan. Jesus was letting the church know that the synagogue of Satan would be successful in summoning their master. And the result is a terrible tribulation for the church. But Jesus promises there in verse 10 that it will only last for 10 days. 
Now, be honest here. It's a little challenging to know if these 10 days are actual 10 days, night and morning 10 days, or if it's a symbolic 10 days. Because like the number seven in Scripture, 10 is used all over the Bible to symbolize completeness, fullness, entirety. So think of the 10 plagues that came upon Jesus, uh, came upon Egypt as the fullness of God's judgment on that land. Or the 10 commandments, which represent the completeness of God's law, which was comprised of 613 commands. 10 days could mean that the Smyrna church would face tribulation for some period of time that Christ had ordained, but it would have an end, it would have a limit, and that is symbolized in 10 days of completeness for their tribulation. And indeed, we know through the testimony of history that Smyrna's troubles, Smyrna's troubles did not end in 70 AD. It went on for some time. There's a man named Polycarp who was a disciple of the Apostle John. In fact, many people say that Polycarp was the last living person to have known an apostle. And Polycarp eventually became the pastor of Smyrna. And in 155 AD, he was hunted down by the Romans. When he was finally caught, his captor said to him, and I love this, this is so, you see this happening. The captor says to Polycarp, what is the harm in saying Lord Caesar and offering a sacrifice and saving yourself from death? Polycarp responded with, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? You threaten with fire that burns for a short time and it is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. Come, do what you will. And as Polycarp burned alive, he worshipped the one true king in a loud prayer until those flames brought silence. Polycarp was faithful to the point of death. In the last sentence of verse 10, you see that phrase, be faithful unto death. And another rendering could be, be faithful to the point of death, all the way up until that moment. For us in 2021, the church of Smyrna gave us Polycarp, a living and then dying example of what it means to be faithful to the point of death. And Polycarp's just one of the Smyrnans that we know about who was martyred. There were others. Certainly there were others in the days before 70 AD and in the days that followed. But whether or not 10 days means 10 days or it means some preordained period of tribulation, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who determined how long it would be. He is the ultimate author of our trials. Jesus is the ultimate author of our trials. So though behind the apostate Jews and the authorities, Satan was wielding his power, still Jesus is the ultimate authority of our trials. And 10 days of tribulation is a light and momentary affliction compared to reigning with Christ for a thousand years. 
The pre-70AD church in Smyrna was facing tribulations so grave that some of them would indeed face death. And perhaps that was a quiet death dying in a prison cell, or perhaps it was a public death like Polycarp. And either way, the Christians who refused to call Caesar Lord faced the ultimate test of loyalty. And all they had to say was, Caesar is Lord, and they would be fine. I wonder, are there ways that we compromise the lordship of Jesus today? If Jesus is Lord over our bodies, do we worship him with our bodies? If he is Lord over our minds, do we worship him with our thinking? If he is Lord over our resources, do we honor him with what we have? You cannot honor Jesus as Lord in these times of comfort. What will you do when your body faces imprisonment or fire? Peter once said that he would be faithful unto death. And he was adamant. Within hours, he was running away, cursing and denying Jesus. We might not deny Jesus with our mouths, but do we do it with our lives? Do you know what the verdict will be on Judgment Day? Jesus said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who do not submit to the Lordship of Christ, who do not trust and obey Jesus, they worship in the synagogue of Satan. There might be worshipers of the synagogue of Satan seated in the seats of Emmanuel. People that are gripped by the Christ-denying spirit of Antichrist. And they will know tribulation without end. So how do you escape this terrible fate? How is it possible to leave the synagogue of Satan, escape the wrath of God? Well, just as Jesus said, as he began with the church in Smyrna, you believe that Jesus Christ lived and died And lived again. And that his resurrection is the resurrection for all who believe. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Know that Jesus is the first and the last. And love him for it. He holds your future in his hand. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And if you love him, well, that means that he has loved you. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must remember the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the first and the last. That he died and yet he lives. We see what he has done. And we love him for it. We gaze upon his glorious and sovereign identity and we trust him with all that we have and we get down on our knees and we cry out, show me the kingdom and we seek that kingdom above all else. And he says that all these things will be added unto you. All the things of the kingdom will be added unto you. The church in Smyrna desperately needed to know that their tribulations were not in vain. That their struggles and their pains and their suffering was, there was purpose behind them. And so Jesus reminds them that he is the first and the last. And when Satan casts them into tribulation, the sovereign king is unfolding a a plan far greater. And gold is being refined to the praise of the Father. And though some will face death, and some will lose their loved ones, they desperately need to remember that Jesus has defeated that very death. He will defeat their death as he has defeated his death. We need not fear. Just as he commanded the church in Smyrna, he commands us, fear not. Theirs was terrible tribulation and poverty and persecution. Ours is the suffocation of materialism and entertainment and comfort. We all face tribulations of some sort. But to all in the church, all throughout history, Christ extends the same promise. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So as I was writing the sermon... Wrestling with these words, I couldn't help but see so many areas (laughs) that I need to submit to Christ. So many areas where I have not surrendered to his lordship. So many times where I walk up to the synagogue of Satan and I appear in the doors. Sometimes it feels like this, this tiny slice of the kingdom is all in tatters and constantly at war. And it's not because Christ is unable to conquer it because there's constant mutiny happening here. Again, I cry out, I believe. Help my unbelief. And even though it feels this way, and even though I must constantly, constantly go back and surrender, ask Christ to increase my faith, I know that he will finish what he started. As I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord, even over my struggling faith. He will have victory in this heart, just as he will have victory in the whole world, just as he will have victory in every one of these hearts in this room. Lord, I believe it. Help my unbelief. Believe. 
brothers and sisters, and join with the church in Smyrna, wealthy beyond all imagining, not in dollars, but in endless days, days upon days, to enjoy him who is the first and the last. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, we bow before you in awe. How good you are, how gracious to have plucked us from the kingdom of darkness where we were worshiping in the synagogue of Satan and transferred us into the marvelous kingdom of your light. Help us know what it is, Father, to live there with, with more, with all, surrendering everything. And though tribulation come, though we face challenges and difficulty, God, help us to not be forgetful. Keep our hearts from wandering. They are prone to wander. Help us to see Christ as the greatest treasure above all other treasures, making all other treasures seem like rubbish compared to knowing you and being found in you. Oh God, we pray for this marvelous work in our hearts, in this church, and to not let these words fall on deaf ears. By the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, bear fruit. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.